Yep, looks like I'm live. So, yeah, happy uh, Memorial Day weekend to everybody. So, uh, what we're going to talk about today <laughs> is uh, creation stories and the origin of evil, origins of evil stories that were banned from the Bible. So, I want to look at two uh, I want to compare to, I want to start with the secret gospel of John. And I guess before I do that, I should talk about, um, you know, this is one of the things really interesting to me. I love, uh, I got introduced to some of this stuff from a Bible scholar by the name of Elaine Pagels. And Elaine Pagels worked on the translations of the Gnostic texts in the Nag Hammadi library. He is a very well-respected scholar in the field. And I thought it was funny because I, I was listening to an, an interview of hers, and this was years ago when I was first getting into some of this stuff and trying to figure out the Bible and trying to think through things that I should have thought through in my 20s <laughs> before I embraced the faith like I did and got into the ministry. But anyway, so she made this statement in this interview. She said she went to seminary, and I want to say she went to Yale or Princeton or one of those places. I could be wrong. But she went to a prestige university, and she said she was excited to go because she was convinced that there was this once pristine, perfect Christianity out there in the very beginning, you know, that Jesus taught his disciples and that was preserved. And so she thought she'd be able to go to university and find the true faith, the pure faith that was, quote unquote, as the Bible says, once and for all delivered to the saints. And she said the exact opposite thing happened. Not only did she learn about all the different controversies that were within the what we would call the Orthodox Church, the established church, the Catholic universal church, but there were all these other streams of Gnostics, what are called Gnostics, or what we call Gnosticism, that existed as well. Now, the only thing that we really knew about Gnosticism uh, prior to like 1954 or whatever, when they found the Nag Hammadi Library, the only thing that people knew was what they had read from the church fathers that were condemning them. <laughs> so Irenaeus is a good example of this. Um, so Irenaeus, you know, condemns, he mentions actually the secret gospel or the secret gospel or secret book of John, or sometimes it's called the Ap- Apocryphon of John which I'm going to get into a little bit because it's very interesting. Uh, And I'll get into that a little bit today. So he mentions that book as being heretical. But see, here's the point, going back to what Elaine Pagel said, because I kind of felt the same way and thought the same way. I thought the closer we could stick to the Bible, the closer we could get back to the original teachings of Christ, the original teachings of Jesus, follow the teachings of Jesus, then the more... Pure the stream. Like if you get closer to the source, the purer the stream gets, right? And um, then you hear about these books that were banned from the Bible, right? 
And, but see, the problem is we're following the traditional line of thinking. We're, we're believing what we're told to believe by the people who put the Bible together. That these other books of the Bible, like, for example, the secret gospel of John or the gospel of Thomas or the gospel of Judas, uh, or the gospel of Mary Magdalene, that they were, um, false the gospels, that they were false teachings, that they were, uh, fake accounts of Christ and what Christ taught. And they're, they were dangerous. Now you gotta ask yourself, let's just step back from this and ask ourselves something real quick. God's plan, God, God and God's infinite wisdom. I'm taking this from a Christian perspective. God and his infinite wisdom, God's plan is to create humanity and put them in paradise uh, where they can enjoy each other and eat to their heart's content and delight, right? That seems like a pretty good plan from a loving God. If he's going to create humanity, he's going to create a creation that he loves, that this God would want to walk with his creation or her creation in the cool of the day, right? In this paradise place. But this God we read about in the Bible, he creates this paradise and then gives Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, a chance to lose it, to lose paradise, to lose life. By eating at the wrong tree, the tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And and then he says, okay, don't eat from that tree because this is going to mess up everything up. We, we got a really good thing going here. If you eat from that tree, it's really going to mess things up. And then to make matters worse, not only does God allow the opportunity for them to eat from that tree, but he 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 lets the serpent in the garden. He lets the devil under Christian, orthodox Christian thinking. He lets the devil in the garden. And the devil... Uh, then lies to Eve and Adam. And so they eat at this tree, and now everything's cursed. Adam's cursed, Eve's cursed, the world's cursed, the animals are cursed. Now there's pain and suffering, and we kick you out of the Garden of Eden. But we love you so much. We love God, loved humanity so much that he had a plan that he was going to send himself, the second member of the Trinity, or he was going to send his son to die for humanity, right? And save humanity. But then the key was you had to believe. You had to believe this glorious gospel, this wonderful gospel, this wonderful message of grace. You had to believe it in order for it to impact you and change change your life, for, in order for it to take effect. And even universalists out there who are completely confused in my book, uh, that are preaching grace and think it's so wonderful that all of humanity is is saved. Not that I'm not a universalist. I just don't subscribe to any of those motifs anymore because I want you to think about this. Even they say, well, but we've cornered the market with Jesus. You've got to believe in Jesus. The, the light and the revelation of the gospel, once it comes to you about how loved you are and how good God is and about his grace, then it's just, it's just, gives me the goosebumps, right? So let's suppose that this revelation is key to your life in some way. Or your salvation. Let's say it's key to your salvation in some way. And if we go with those that are not universalists, which are a very small number of Christians today, most Christians are not universalists. Most Christians are doing Christianity to avoid hell or some avoid some kind of punishment or to receive some kind of blessing, right? And so let's just go with that. 
what so for you to be saved you have to believe the right gospel so we're going to make it so complicated that we're going to allow humanity to create all kinds of different stories and all kinds of different teachings and all kinds of different gospels from the very beginning why why would there be this frantic of just uh let's change the teachings of of Jesus like does this even make sense like why make it so hard oh but god is good all the time you know why make it so hard for us why make it so hard for people to be saved you know like anyway and only 500 people saw Jesus raised from the dead anyway according to Paul the apostle and I don't mean bring Paul into this because Paul had his own version of Christianity. Because remember, Paul didn't receive teachings from Jesus while Jesus was alive. Paul had what in the the day was known as a Merkava experience. Merkava means uh, the 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 there was there was a lot of obsession about Ezekiel's vision of the chariot throne, and so. Paul on the road to Damascus has his chariot throne ex- uh, experience, and he sees Jesus on the throne. So now he's got his own revelation, getting his own downloads, as we would call them today, and he's starting his own version of Christianity. So you have Pauline Christianity, you have um, sort of the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke Christianity, you have Johannine Christianity, and then you have Gnostic Christianity, and maybe Johannine Christianity is Gnostic Christianity. But now here's the interesting thing. As I was studying and reading the secret gospel of John, uh, you know, I've been doing this class on Wednesday nights. And one of the things that I'm talking about is the, uh, what I'm calling the primordial wisdom. In other words, there, there are things that almost universally were taught by ancient humanity in some form or another. The stories vary a little bit by culture, as you might expect, but there are certain principles that are kind of the same. And, I'll be damned if reading, (laughs) I will be damned according to Irenaeus, reading the secret gospel of John, if you don't see hints of these same sort of universal teachings that are present in some aspects of Hinduism, definitely present in the uh, the Kabbalah. And so how do we know what that maybe Jesus wasn't teaching this primordial wisdom. How, how do we know the Gnostic teaching isn't the right teaching? And anyway, it just gets confusing. But anyway, let's get into this. Let's get into this. So in the secret gospel of John, John it has an encounter. It's, it opens up with John the apostle having an encounter with a Pharisee who basically curses him for, you know, he says, where's your teacher gone? Where's your teacher gone that you were following? And he curses the Nazarene and says he made us, uh, he, he, he blasphemed the traditions of our people and turned you away from the Jewish faith, the traditions of the faith. <clears throat> yeah. And, and now remember, okay, so this, this gospel is written around the same time as the other gospels. So it very well could be something that was written by John himself. And it is, I'm just saying. There's no way to say, no, this, this one that has John on it is this one that has John's name on it. It's not legit. 
the, the legitimacy of which gospels were to be put in the Bible and to be banned from the Bible were decided centuries later by people who put gospels in that fit with what that, that fit with the advancement of their bishopric and their authority because the problem was the, the, the Gnostics did not have these hierarchies of bishops and priests and this sort of controlling thing because the Gnostics were saying the secret is in you. The, the, the light, the revelation, the glory is in you. And, and John's apocryphon is the secret gospel of John. The secret book of John brings this out. Anyway, so. John goes and leaves this encounter with this Pharisee and he's weeping and he's crying out and suddenly he has a vision of Jesus or a vision of Christ who appears in different forms. And this is common in uh, a lot of the Gnostic Gospels. Jesus doesn't appear just as a carpenter. Uh, often he appears as a child, then as an old man, then as a woman, then as a young man, basically shape-shifting in all these different forms. But then... Jesus begins to tell um, John. <laughs> he begins to tell John the creation story about because John asks, where did he go? And Jesus says that he went to the higher worlds of the spirit. And so Jesus in this gospel begins to explain the higher world of the spirit to John. Now, this is really, really common. In a lot of these writings, not just the Gnostic writings, but the Zohar does this, which is where a lot of the Kabbalistic philosophy comes from. Other uh, teachings and myths as well, when they're explaining the structure and the nature of the spiritual dimension, they often go back to how it was created. And uh, in this version of creation... There is, uh, God exists, but not God like you think about it. So, not God in a personified, anthropomorphic human form. God exists in what is known as the monad. And he's basically, Jesus refers to the monad as the king. And I'll explain this in a minute, just stay with me. As the supreme king, as the highest authority, as the causeless cause. As the one. So whenever in any of these books they're talking about the monad, they're talking about God in his God in God's self. Uh, they always say you cannot come up with words to describe what God is like, because in the beginning there was just the monad. There was just the one. There was just the supreme ruler without any differentiation whatsoever. So I explain it this way. There was no, in order for there to be knowledge, there has to be a duality. In order for there to be a knowledge, there has to be a duality. Because there has to be a knower and that which is known. So, for example, I'm talking about the secret gospel of John. That's the information. If you're hearing this for the first time or you're learning something from this, you're gaining knowledge. You're the knower. There's there's an interplay there in the monad. There's no interplay. So you can't speak of it. It is in Kabbalistic terms. It's called the Ein Sof. Um, Ein. It's, it's called the Ein. A-I-N. The Ein in Kabbalistic thinking is no 
thing. Not nothing, but no thing, because no thing has yet been created. So John's using the same example of the monad. And then it says, out of the monad came thought. Out of the monad came thought. And thought then takes on sort of these anthropo, uh, I'm sorry, not anthropomorphic, androgynous ideas that thought first comes out as female, but then it's also male and then it's referred to as the mother father. So you have the monad and then you have the mother father that comes out. And then down the road, you know, so then they're creating all these what Jesus begins to describe is a realm of mind that's being created, a realm of consciousness that's being created, with the first one being thought, and then all these other things. And along comes this one, wisdom, or Sophia. Uh, and Sophia carries all this light and glory. And Sophia wants to create her own being. She wants to create her own son. By herself without her male counterpart. So she wants to give a virgin birth, so to speak, without a male counterpart and without the blessing of the mother, father or of the spirit. Are you tracking with me? I hope so. So she goes and creates a son by herself. So if you think about it this way, there is a disharmonious creation. There is a disharmonious spawning, if you will. And she creates a being that uh, she calls Yal de Baals. Yal de Baals. And Yal de Baals is, uh, she's kind of repelled by what she's created, but he's got the light of his mother inside of him. So he's radiating with lights and all this. And she wants to hide this after she realizes what she does. She wants to hide this, this entity from the mother, father. And so what she does is she sets him on a throne surrounded in a cloud of light. So basically the idea is that Yaldabaoth shows up thinking that he is the only God. And, and John, Jesus stresses this in the gospel of John that Yaldabaoth says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Does that sound familiar? And Yaldabaoth, but, but Yaldabaoth is, is full of jealousy. Uh, he says he's a jealous God. So in other words, Yaldabaoth doesn't know that he's not the only God. <laughs> he thinks he's the only God because he's been separated off from the rest of the, what the, what the Gnostics called the Pleroma, the rest of the spiritual world, uh, out of harmony with it off on his own, off sort of in independence, saying, I am God, I am the Lord, there is no other besides me. But yet, intuitively, he knows that there is another God, or he wouldn't be able to be jealous that there is another God. So anyway, all this stuff goes on in the gospel, and it gets a little complicated because there's all these namings of what they call the pleroma, or the different energies and virtues and aspects of mind that are being created in the beginning, and light and energy that is being created in the beginning. So you can go read it for yourself, and you'll see where I'm probably getting some of this wrong. Uh, and just little details, little finer details. The point is, 
that eventually Sophia goes back to the mother father in repentance. And so they want to figure out by, by this time, what's happened is y'all Baals has spawned his own generation of seraphim and angels, but he wants to keep himself top dog. So he doesn't put the, his light. He gives him thought. He gives him animation. He gives him life. But the light that came from his mother that's in him, he doesn't give it to, um, he doesn't give it to the other beings and entities around him. But he's creating his own sort of universe, alternative universe, if you will, out here. So the mother father gets this idea to create the pattern of a man. Now, this is really interesting because when you read the term the son of man, in a lot of ancient philosophies, the son of man was the primordial man or an archetype or a pattern for the universe. So in a lot of ancient philosophies, what was created first before the material world was created? What was created first was the archetype of humanity, that the original universe was created. You can think about it as this giant, I mean, just humongous, right? Stretching out for millions and millions and millions and millions of light years pattern of a man that is the basis by which the universe is created. So that's sort of what we see here in the secret gospel of John, that this archetypal man is created in the world, in the realm of the heavens and is so glorious and so bright that the light literally shakes Yaldabaoth and Yaldabaoth's realm. Because Yaldabaoth, I forgot to mention Yaldabaoth, is responsible for creating the material world. Yaldabaoth is responsible for creating the material world. So what happens is, is they see in the heavens above them this radiant pattern of a human being and so they decide to create their own human being. But they create it in a body. So they create Adam. So Yaldabaoth and his guys create Adam. And then there was this secret plan to deal with Yaldabaoth to get the light out of him, to take back for Sophia, to take back her light. So they convince Yaldabaoth by sending these messengers to him to breathe his light into Adam. And so when Yaldabaoth breathes into Adam the breath of life, <laughs> he becomes. He becomes the Adam that we know in the garden. But what happens is the light leaves Yaldabaoth and goes into Adam. So that now Adam is smarter, Adam is wiser, and Adam is greater than everything in all of creation, even Yaldabaoth himself. And so in order for Yaldabaoth to manage this situation, he creates 
uh, reproduction and physical bodies. And basically, without going into all of the details, he creates paradise as a prison and he creates the body to sort of entomb or encase this light. And the goal is sort of to make humanity or Adam forget and the generations of Adam to forget who they are. And he keeps them in this garden and he tells them they can eat of all the trees in the garden. But it says that the trees were bitter and the trees were poisonous. And so in this secret gospel of John, Christ reveals himself. Christ reveals himself to be the serpent in the garden who got them to eat at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because it was through the tree eating at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that the knowledge that was within them and that could save them could be activated so they could escape the prison and the the, the tyranny of Yaldabaoth. So now let's step back for a minute and let's realize what's happening here. What's happening here is that in the secret gospel of John, I'm going to, I'm going to simplify it all here. They are saying that Yahweh, the Gnostics were saying that Yahweh, the God of the old Testament, the God that created humanity, Adam and Eve in the garden, is a fallen God, is an ignorant God, and is an evil God. Or, as Doug Wentz put up there, the Demiurg, the unbalanced Yaldabaoth. Yes, Adam Cadmon, the first matter, exactly. Uh, had Adam Cadmon in mind. And I was talking about that. But so here's the idea. So they're seeing Yahweh as the enslaver, and they're seeing the serpent as being possessed not by the devil, but being possessed by Christ in order to illuminate for man what was already in man, which was that he was greater and the light that was in humanity was greater than Yaldabaoth to begin with. And so in the Gnostic circles, one of the reasons they didn't like the Gnostics, the Orthodox didn't like the Gnostics, is because they also elevated the divine feminine, Sophia. They saw Sophia as the divine feminine. So they talk about the monad. They talk about the masculine and feminine principle in the Godhead, they honor the divine feminine, they honored wisdom as feminine, and so therefore they also honored women. They taught women and they allowed women to teach. These were some of the issues that really, really bothered the Orthodox believers. So I guess what I'm saying is, is what if, what if the Gnostics were actually closer to what the original teachings of the Christians were? And (laughs) what if it's the exact opposite of what we've been told and what we've been taught? Now I'm going to give you one other. I'm going to, I'm going to leave that there for a second. I'm going to come back to what uh, what Doug said here about unbalanced. Because it is this imbalance. This is where these stories teach us some things. And let me just say this. I don't think these ancient people believed in these creation stories with these people, like, for instance, Sophia or the mother-father. I don't think they believed in them as real personal deities like we think, um, particularly the enlightened ones, particularly the initiates. So you've always had, it seemed in every culture, you have the exoteric, you have what's given to the public, and you have the esoteric, what's known only to the initiates. And the esoteric, what's known only to the initiates, is where the real wisdom and understanding about the universe and humanity and origins and stuff operates and it's in that esoteric stream whether they were the priests in egypt or whether they were the shaman that were the wisdom keepers that were initiated into their uh 
shamanic traditions, through rituals and teachings. So whether it was the wisdom keepers of ancient indigenous cultures or whether it was the priests of the Medes and the Persians or the priests of Sumer or ancient Egypt, you had this initiated tribe whose responsibility was to keep the link between the visible and the invisible world together and also to teach and lead the people. So what I'm saying is the public may have believed in many human gods on Mount Olympus or whatever, but when you start looking at this other stuff, it's so deep and profound, the teachings, and it makes so much sense. I think they are using, they are naming principles. They are naming principles. They are naming energies, just like we talk about gravity and we talk about uh, electromagnetic energy and we talk about electricity as things. I think they assigned male, masculine and feminine traits to these principles because they understood the interplay of the masculine and feminine within creation. Um, hopefully I'm not losing you guys with this. So I want to talk about another. So my point with the Gospel of John was that evil came from the Bible itself. The, 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 the Bible itself, Yahweh was Yaldabaoth and the imprisonment, really Gnosticism is talking about the imprisonment of religion, the imprisonment of serving a tyrannical God who sits on a throne, who's going to punish you if you don't serve him perfectly and correctly. That, that's what the Gnostics are saying. And I think they're coding it in these stories to tell you that it's these controlling religious institutions where a lot of the evil is taking place throughout the human race and that our liberation, part of our liberation is breaking free from those institutions and the thinking that goes along with that to discover the greatness and the glory and the light that is within us. So let me take some time. Does that make sense to you guys? So let me um, take some time to talk about the Kabbalistic idea of where evil originated. I'm oversimplify this to the nth degree. So in the Kabbalistic tree of life or the Sephirot or the understanding of creation in Kabbalah, you also begin with a monad. You begin with a singularity. And the singularity wants to express itself, the monad wants to express itself in diversity. So in Kabbalah, the creation story is not God creating something other or outside of God's self. So, for example, it's not like an artist or a painter creating a painting. That's kind of our traditional idea of creation, that God, you know, put creation out here. But this is more the idea of emanation, that God emanated. And so in Kabbalah, the first thing that God emanated is 10 spheres of energy and light, 10 spheres of light that were called the Sephirot. And so the first sphere, which is really the second, I don't want to confuse people that know Kabbalah. I just don't want to get into all the stuff with how the first sphere came into existence. So you have the first sphere, you have the first sphere, which is not part of the monad, but is called Kether or the crown. And Kether is sort of androgynous. It's both male and female. And it stands in the middle column. And it gives birth 
Hathor, or the crown, gives birth to wisdom, and wisdom is called the father. And then wisdom gives an exchange of energy and creates a next sephiroth, or emanates the next sephiroth, which is bina, which is uh, understanding. And then, so then you have father and mother, and then father and mother together create a son, which is right in the center of the diagram, which is Tiferet, which is where balance and harmony and beauty and everything takes place. And then there's this, um, but there's also these spheres of energy. One is Hesed, which is loving kindness, and the other is severity or judgment or power or strength. And it's called Givura. So what's supposed to happen is that there's this interplay of these energies going back and forth. So wisdom and understanding, uh, the interplay of wisdom and understanding gives you knowledge. In this particular instance, you have loving kindness and severity going together. I hope you can get this without an illustration of it. The father is wisdom. The mother is understanding. But then let's come down to loving kindness, mercy and loving kindness, and severity. Now, in the Kabbalistic system, mercy and loving kindness is a male, is considered a masculine expression within the universe. Now, just think about this in terms of reproduction. These are principles. These are not, this is not related to gender like we think about it. These are more principles of creation. How there has to be, so if you just think about reproduction, the masculine seed penetrates the womb. It invades a space. It invades an environment. It it breaks a barrier. It penetrates, and there's a robust giving, right? So there's a lot of sperm that, that is given there. So that's the masculine trait. It's this giving. So loving kindness and mercy and grace is seen as just being poured out liberally and generously. And just this, this tremendous giving, right? So this is where we get the idea of God's just loving kindness and mercy and grace and everything being poured out. But in Kabbalah, they understand that you, there also has to be, in order for there to be a balance, there has to be a polar opposite. So the opposite of loving kindness and tender mercy is severity. And then it's supposed to be balanced in the center of the tree or in the sun, which is Tifereth which is beauty and harmony. So in other words, you had a middle column, you had a masculine column, masculine column, feminine column, and a middle column on the diagram of the Kabbalistic tree of life. You have the masculine energies, the feminine energies, and you have the middle column, which is a balance or a harmonizing of the two. But what they say happened in the beginning, when when the Sephiroth of severity was being created, it was repelled by the generosity of the loving kindness that was being poured out. And a spark shot off, if you will, or an aspect of severity broke off. So this is the same kind of idea that we see in Gnosticism, that there was an element of the mind, an element in the creation process that broke off from the rest of it. And so this severity and judgment that broke off, it began to create its own separate and sort of its own universe that ends up then again being the physical universe. But here's the fascinating thing that I want to get to with this. What they would say, what all of this is teaching us 
is that where evil comes from in these principles, the ancient primordial understanding of where evil comes from is when something gets out of balance, when something gets out of this tension. And in this case with Kabbalah, this is really interesting. When you have judgment. So the root of all evil from this perspective is not the love of money. The root of all evil from this perspective is severity and judgment. Judgment that's not balanced with loving kindness. Judgment that's not balanced with mercy. Severity that's not balanced. So that, so that life that is built upon judgment, watch this, life that is built upon judgment and severity is where a lot of the terrible things come. So if you're judging, if you're heaping judgment on yourself for things that you did, you're experiencing the severity of that, they would say that is evil. If you are trying to gain power over someone else by taking away equality, then that is severity or judgment that is independent and out of balance. Racism, war, religions, all this stuff, you know, it's interesting that the Abrahamic religions are fighting with each other because they're under that energy, if you will, of Yaldabaoth. <laughs> they're under that energy of the Demiurge. So from a Gnostic perspective, I'm, I'm just putting this out here. From a Gnostic perspective, the origin of evil is imbalance. The origin of evil is in the primordial times, in the very beginning before matter was created, Something independently broke off. And in the Kabbalah, what independently breaks off becomes very severe and very harsh and very dominating. In the Gnostic gospel, it becomes Yaldabaoth, who uh, is full of darkness and whatever. And the earth is a prison. But I, I just want to submit this idea to you that perhaps the ancient people were trying to tell us something, that perhaps there are principles of evil that operate within our world, that operate within our world, which, by the way, loving kindness without being uh, balanced with judgment is no bueno. <laughs> I know we don't like the judgment severity part of it, but if it's not balanced, there's no beauty. And the perfect example of this is raising your children. If all you ever do is give your kids everything that they want, if you never assign consequences that are severe enough to teach them something, then you are going to raise what we used to call in my day and age a spoiled brat. You're going to raise an entitled monster who can't really survive much in life because they've never experienced the severity of life. On the other hand, if you just punish all the time, if you just give consequences all the time, if there's just severity all the time, then you've got child abuse. So in parenting, when you have these two elements in balance, you have beauty and you can raise healthy kids, right? So all this thing, it's just interesting to me how these creation stories have so many similarities uh, about how we got here, and they're nothing like the Garden of Eden story that we've been taught to believe as Christians. In fact, they're the exact opposite of Garden of Eden stories that we were taught as Christians. Another interesting thing that I'll bring up that's in the Bible. Remember in the Bible, it says Genesis chapter 6, 
it says that the the sons of God um, procreated with the daughters of women and gave birth to a master race, giants on the earth. And then it was after that, the, the great men, men of renown, they were called, the great men, the men of renown. And then it was after that that the earth becomes filled with violence and God sends Noah's flood, a water catastrophe to sink and destroy that primordial world in order to start again. So from a different perspective within Judaism, you have the Enochian books, you have the Enoch stories. And in the Enoch stories, the fall does not happen because Adam and Eve ate an apple. The fall happens because the angels come down and they start teaching humanity about magic. They start teaching humanity about seduction. They start teaching humanity about cultivation and war and giving them all these skills. And that's how they fall is by way of the angels. So here's what, here's what I want to suggest. The ancient Sumers, which the Sumerians predate uh, the, the Bible by thousands of years. I'm going to say 35, 3,600, or 36,000. Anyway, thousands of years, 3,600. I can't remember. Don't have the numbers in front of me. But anyway, Sumer predates Egypt. It predates the Bible, predates Moses, predates Abraham. Certainly predates King Josiah, who actually wrote the Bible, not Moses. He, Josiah and his scribes. But anyway, for another time. Uh, they also had a flood that wiped everything out. And they also had stories of people from the skies coming and uh, mating with the daughters of men. And so what what if, I, I just want to throw this out, because what if there was an ancient advanced civilization? What if there were people of renown? And what if they were, what if, what if what that story is telling us is that humanity is both angelic and human? In other words, what if it's not a literal thing? And I have to credit Doug for this, uh, cause I, I think Doug, you talked about this in one of your videos or posts. What if it's not the angels came down and mated with man? What if it's not aliens came down? What if it's not, you know, higher beings came down? What if it is showing us that humanity is both angelic and human, that humanity is both spiritual and divine and animal, right? And that the marrying, the balancing, the putting of those things together is what gives birth to men of renown, women of renown, what gives birth to this um, race of people. And I'm talking about the human race. I'm not, I'm not differentiating. I got to choose my words carefully because somebody will misunderstand. I'm not talking about like the European sort of idea of a mass race. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying humanity as a whole, black, white, brown, Jewish, Native American, Asian, all of us and all of our diversity, that we are a race of people who are meant to live superior lives in terms of quality, not in terms of dominance, not in terms of inequality for others, but in terms of the quality of life that we are able to bring forth for ourselves and for others. That's what I'm talking about, by bringing the angelic and the human together. But here's the, this is an interesting idea that perhaps, because Plato talked about Atlantis being a very advanced civilization 
on both a spiritual and technological level. Um, I think in theosophy, Madame Blavatsky talked about Lemuria being a very advanced race of people, both spiritually and technological wise. What if the Bible is trying to tell us the same thing? What if the Bible is trying to tell us that there were a group of people in the beginning who got it? There were a group of people in the beginning who let that light radiate out from them and they became people of renown. But then somewhere along the way, and this goes with, with, uh, Plato's story of Atlantis, somewhere along the way, they became extremely corrupt and began to use that power as a way to oppress, as a way to, to send violence upon the earth. And then is destroyed in some kind of a cataclysmic event where maybe their society and people drowned in the sea. And what if the Noah story was never meant to be taken literally either? What if it was just a way that ancient people told us that somewhere in our history, there were men of renown who brought the, and by men, I mean humanity. There was a human kind of renown that brought the masculine and the feminine principles together in perfect harmony, right? And, and, but became very, very corrupt in their expression of power, became very oppressive in their expression of power, or something happened, and through a cataclysmic event, not a worldwide flood that wiped out the entire world, but that's how it's being told in the story. I don't know. I'm just throwing out ideas. Because one thing's for sure, when you're talking about the ancient wisdom, you're talking about the the wisdom of Thoth and the hermetic wisdom and stuff like that. They all say it came from somewhere. They all say they were taught it from somewhere. And it just seems to me that some of these origin stories that you see in other situations, we find elements of it in the Bible, but I find it very, very fascinating that the Gnostics taught that uh, paradise, uh, I'm sorry, that Eden was not paradise but a prison. (laughs) And that Yahweh was not this wonderful, benevolent creator, but rather an oppressor. So I just think it's it's fun to get that alternative view. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is teaching this <laughs> in the Gospel of John. John, the apostle, is writing this down, and the resurrected Christ is giving this to him in a revelation. So you could see why to bring it all the way full home. Why uh, at the beginning I said, you know, you think if you go back all the way to the beginning that you're going to find this pristine version of Christianity that is so pure and so holy um when in reality it was a convoluted and confusing thing from the get-go uh so you have a lot of credibility issues i mean like why would god want you to be saved by believing if you have credibility issues (laughs) i mean you know what i'm saying like like you're gonna have to come to faith but i'm gonna have all kinds of credibility issues i want to go back and look at some of these comments Doug says, formless nurturing is shaped by the feminine. Yes. Thank you, brother. Um, they thought the earthly or terrestrial part was of us was sinful. Therefore, the celestial and terrestrial in us to marry and give birth to a new creation was forbidden and thought to be evil. Hence, Genesis 6 of the Phenoch. Excellent. Um, 
Ah, I like this. Very possible. It is possible that the ascended people detached from human life and then began to lust for power over others. Yeah, so I'm just throwing out ideas, gang. I'm just, just having fun today. It's Memorial Day weekend. Um, being a real nerd because <laughs> this kind of stuff I find fun and it's really nerdy. So anyway, um, if you have questions and stuff, feel free to pop those out there and I'll try to get to them. Um, and look at the comments. Thank you so much for watching. I hope this has been, uh, a real blessing for you. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope it's made you think and, uh, I will catch you all next time. Blessings. <laughs>